0: once again are found in the book of Mark, and we are now about to um, begin the trial of Jesus. Very familiar portions of Jesus' life. We'll be looking at Mark 15, verses 1 through 21. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, "It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Bravis for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to him, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, "Hail, king of the Jews!" And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. the title for this morning's message is Answering Injustice. And this is a compelling question, especially because of the injustice that has recently taken place in America. The, the video that most of us, most Americans at least, have seen of George Floyd's killing has shocked the American public. And there, there's something in all of us that is stirred up when seeing such flagrant injustice get committed. And, and the incident has burst the dam open on issues regarding injustice. And so Christians are wrestling with how should they respond to injustice? What is their responsibility? In particular, what is our responsibility when we ourselves face injustice? When injustice is committed upon us, how is it? that we should respond? Well, I think in order to answer that question, we first need to define our terms. We need to define what we mean by justice. The term justice predominantly refers to right treatment according to the established laws, whether that's the laws of the nation, the county, the the workplace where you work, right treatment in accordance with those laws. But people recognize that even if a person follows the letter of the law, injustice can still be committed. For instance, what if one of those laws or rules are unjust by nature themselves? There's still injustice. Which shows that there's, there's more to justice than just following the letter of the law. In other words, what basis are those laws founded upon? How is justice defined? Well, Christians would define justice based upon the character of God. The the same word uh, um, for justice used in Scripture is righteousness. The term justification, for instance, means to be declared righteous. A just person is a righteous person. So justice is doing and, or acting in accordance with God's law. And therefore, injustice is sin. Lying, cheating, stealing, murder, any sin is injustice, biblically speaking. But as societies reject a belief in the biblical God, then they need to find something else to which to, to base their laws upon. Our founding fathers um, were heavily influenced by the Enlightenment thinkers, the philosophers of the Enlightenment, that uh, inspired the Age of Revolutions, uh, revolutions in Europe such as Italy and Germany and uh, France, also in America, Um, and they they established justice in uh, based upon what they termed natural laws, for instance. Examples of that would be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're familiar with those terms. Those are what justice is founded upon, they said. Karl Marx, in turn, rooted justice in economics. The reason he said that there was all forms of injustice was because of greed and the existence of private property. So if you want to eradicate injustice in the world, you need to get rid of private property. And the government needs to redistribute wealth equally to all citizens the new social justice movement has taken Marx just one step further and loosely defines injustice based upon giving people the opportunity to have whatever they want whatever they think they deserve and so it's based upon a twisted sense of equality so not just economics but any differentiation between people, whether that's legally, socially, educationally, any differentiation between people is an expression of injustice. And so, in order to eradicate injustice, you need to establish laws that bring about absolute equality in every area of life. That's the aim. And so, all that to say is, these are all different definitions of Justice, And so when we're talking about justice or injustice, we need to define our terms. But it's important for Christians to recognize that we define injustice very differently from the rest of the world because of our belief in God and His standard of righteousness. And the less laws and social standards, the less they're rooted in belief in God, rooted in Scripture and in God's character, the more they the more that Christians will appear to be the cause of injustice rather than um, promoters of justice. And so more and more, we just have to get used to the fact that we will be seen as harbingers of injustice rather than promoters of justice. And so we need to ask, how should we respond in the face of unjust authorities, unjust laws, unjust treatment? When, we are, when our rights are not upheld, how should we respond? Well, I think part of the answer to this question is the point of the passage before us. As we see justice mocked in the trial of Jesus and the just one himself mocked. And that's really the outline for today's message. Jesus exemplifies how... His followers should respond in the face of flagrant injustice. In fact, the first five verses emphasize Jesus' response. Note the repetition of the word answer. And what we see here is Jesus responds in two ways. He tells the truth about who he is, he acknowledges he is the king of the Jews, but he doesn't elaborate. And he doesn't elaborate because he does not trust in justice being done to him. He doesn't trust in Gentile justice, or Jewish justice for all that matter. He trusts in God's justice. He's silent because he's trusting God, not the authorities questioning him. So he responds in those ways. He tells the truth and he trusts God's justice, not man's. Let's look at this first, the first part of the passage, which is justice justice being mocked. Mark tells us that early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately had a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away to Pilate. In order for the religious leaders to get Jesus killed, they need to get the approval of the Roman authorities. And in order for the Roman authorities to give approval, they need to present a just accusation that would warrant an execution. And according to verse, verse 4, they brought a number of charges against Jesus. But the only accusation that, that sits with Pilate is this statement that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. And the reason that sits with Pilate is because Pilate is highly concerned about maintaining peace in his region of Judea that he's responsible for, that he governs over. He had no interest in serving as a mediator in a religious squabble, but he was concerned about threat to security in the region. And the fact that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews sounded to Pilate like he might be behind some of the recent insurrections. We know that there were some insurrections, both historically, but also just based on the, the passage before us, Barabbas, it is said, is in custody because he had committed murder in a recent insurrection. And so maybe even Pilate was wondering is this Jesus behind the insurrection? And so Pilate wants to discern how big of a threat he really was. And he rapidly discerned that he's actually no threat at all. In fact, the only reason that Jesus is here is because of the envy of the chief priests and the scribes. Pilate was a man of this world. He could see through these religious leaders. So he asked this critical question. Are you the king of the Jews? And this phrase will be repeated again and again throughout this chapter. Emphasizing that even though Jesus was the king of the Jews, he did not receive kingly treatment. In fact, he received the opposite. Jesus, though, affirms that he is, in fact, the king of the Jews. But again, he doesn't elaborate. He tells the truth for the sake of the truth. He knows his job is to tell the truth, to proclaim the truth. But he doesn't defend himself. He remains mute despite all the accusations that are leveled against him, none of which are true. And his muteness expresses both his submission to God and his lack of confidence in Gentile justice. And it's Jesus' silence in the face of all these accusations that floors Pilate. Because he realizes, here is a man that is driven by something very different than the rest of this world. Pilate recognizes how the world works. People in this world seek to make a name for themselves. So they scramble after power, authority, money, prestige to elevate their pride. They they seek to make a name for themselves. But standing before him is a man who is completely immune to all of these influences. Pilate himself feels the strain of these things that Jesus seems so immune to. Pilate fears the loss of power. There's an insurrection. He might lose his position as governor. He might be publicly shamed. He might be removed and put in charge of some troops in some far off land. He's concerned about what his friends think. Back in Rome, or maybe in his own palace. A loss of power means a loss of income and prestige. And this is why he eventually even capitulates to the crowds. He doesn't want the crowds to get upset with him. His pride fears what people think. Pilate is moved by these things, but standing before him is a man that is clearly completely immune to everything that drives people in this world. Pilate exercises worldly justice because he's driven by worldly ambitions. Jesus, in contrast, is content with whatever he might be allotted. And Pilate has no categories for such an existence. Why does this man not defend himself against these accusations? Why is he willing to face death in silence? Who would throw away everything that life has to offer and not defend themselves? What this shows is that trials expose what really drives us, what's really important to us. This trial exposes what's important to Pilate, exposes what's important to the religious leaders, and shows what really is important to Christ. And you're going to see more and more companies and churches and pastors and politicians give way to worldly pressures. They're going to support things that they once repudiated because now public support has changed. The winds have changed and now they're going to follow the winds of change. They're going to support people and ideologies that they previously attacked. And Why? Because they care more about keeping their pride and their power than they do about the truth. They care more about their reputations than their character. They care more about what people think than what God thinks. In our Monday afternoon discipleship group, we're reading Tortured for Christ. And in that book, Richard Verban recounts how pastors in Romania fell like dominoes in the face of communism. He says the communists convened a congress of all Christian bodies in our parliament building. There were 4,000 priests, pastors, and ministers of all denominations. 4,000! And he says all of these men chose Joseph Stalin as honorary president of this congress. And at the same time, Stalin was president of the world movement of the godless and a mass murderer of all Christians. An odd person to have as president of your Christian organization. One after another, bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity are fundamentally the same and could coexist. One minister after another said words of praise toward communism and assured the new government of the loyalty of the church. And then, Wurmbrand writes, My wife and I were present at the Congress. Sabina told me, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in His face. I said to her, If I do so, you lose your husband. She replied, I don't want a coward for a husband. What will you do when faced with similar pressure. When you're pressured to affirm unbiblical ideas, and you know very well what those are in our culture, that are defining companies and policies and driving new laws. What are you going to do when you're pressured to affirm things that you know aren't true? What if people call you a bigot for refusing? What if everybody in the company thinks you're a bigot? What if your family thinks you're just arrogant and support injustice? Would you be willing to compromise to keep your job? Honestly, would you be willing to live in poverty? Finding a job that just... Allows you to make a subsistence living because nobody else would hire you. Over a piece of paper. Would you be willing to give up all those dreams that you've always hoped for? Would you be willing to go to jail? I think that's what's so remarkable about how Jesus responds. Jesus clearly was willing to let go of everything. And he responds to his injustice in two ways. He tells the truth. But he also doesn't trust Gentile justice. He's silent before his accusers. He trusts God's justice. And the wisdom of Jesus' response is demonstrated in what happens the rest of the trial. He does not receive justice. In fact, injustice is compiled upon more injustice. Justice is mocked when an unjust man is released and a just man is condemned to crucifixion. We have a guilty man, Barabbas, getting released beginning in verse 6. And to help us understand how such injustice can occur, Mark informs us that, that the Romans had this tradition of releasing a prisoner during the feast of the Passover. Most likely that was because that's when Jerusalem was swelled with people from all over uh, the world who have come to celebrate the Passover. Great time to have an insurrection when you have more people. Also, a great time to, put, to quench the possibility of an insurrection. And so to placate the crowds, the Romans would release a prisoner. And so a, a crowd of people comes to Pilate eager to find out who they might release this year. And when Pilate hears their question, he seizes upon a golden opportunity. I have a guy here that I know is being condemned unjustly, and I don't want to see him condemned unjustly, nor do I want to see a a criminal get released and be a potential threat. And so he says, why not the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews. And Jesus would have been quickly released, except that the religious leaders would not stand for such justice. They wanted blood. And so it says they stirred up the crowds. That word stirred up is the verbal form of the word seismos, from which we get seismology or earthquakes. They're shaking up the crowds, stirring them up to pressure Pilate to get Jesus crucified so they say release for us barabbas they threaten a riot if barabbas isn't released now recognize they don't care at all about barabbas they just don't want jesus to get released and so they threaten an insurrection unless a guilty man is released so that they can be sure that an innocent man gets killed and the point is the religious leaders don't care about justice They just care about avenging their pride. Likewise, Pilate doesn't really care about justice, but preserving his power. And this is why an innocent man is condemned to crucifixion, verses 12 through 15. Answering, again, Pilate said to him, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Pilate's not persuaded, to give in to their injustice yet, though. And so he asks, on behalf of Jesus, why not him? There's a sliver of injustice and sorry, sliver of justice in Pilate's heart. He doesn't want to see a guilty man unnecessarily condemned. But recognize it's not enough to win the day. Pilate quickly caves under the pressure of the crowds. Pilate, though, has found nothing wrong with him, which is why he asks, Why? What evil has He done? It's the right question to ask. But notice how they respond to the question. They don't answer it. They're not really interested in justice. They're not interested in dialogue. They're not interested in just talking. They want what they want, and they will will not settle down until blood is shed. So they shouted all the more, crucify him. And this was enough for Pilate. It says, wishing to satisfy the crowds he gave in. And then Mark mentions that before he hands him over to be crucified, he hands him over to be scourged. And this is shocking because, again, Jesus hasn't been condemned of any crime. Why is he being scourged? The Gospel of John suggests that this is because Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd, so that maybe upon seeing Jesus and Jesus beaten to a pulp, that they would then not demand His crucifixion anymore. Scourging was a, a very unpleasant punishment. A whip was made of several strips of leather, and often pieces of metal or bone were inserted within it to make the punishment more painful. Uh, the, the, the prisoner would be stripped to the waist and then tied to a pillar, and then... Uh, the the soldier, whoever's executing the punishment, could whip the person either on the front of their body or upon the back. And Mark offers no explanation again why Jesus is scourged, but we assume it's because he wanted to satisfy the crowd's bloodlust. But we see that they remain unsatiated. And they demand His crucifixion. And God allowed all of it. And it really begs this question. Why was justice mocked so horrifically? Jesus was the King of the Jews, but hardly kingly treatment. The King of heaven and earth did not receive justice. Why would God allow that? God allowed justice to be mocked so that perfect justice could be accomplished. As it says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. The just one died for the unjust unjustly to bring us to God. And I think everybody that reads this account of such flagrant injustice is rightly horrified. I had a good friend when the Passion of the Christ came out, uh, clearly an unbeliever, and was just was angered to, to, one, uh, to almost violence upon seeing how cruelly Jesus was treated by the soldiers. I mean, all of us, when we witness injustice, I think, are, are angered. When well, we see what happens on the hand, by the hands of Pilate and the soldiers and, and the religious leaders. Likewise, why we're angered when we saw what happened to George Floyd by Coven? Chauvin, sorry. But what we really need to recognize is that the same flagrant injustice that angers us to the core of our beings is the same injustice that every single one of us is guilty of. Because all of us have acted unjustly. Now I realize none of us were at the trial of Judas. We didn't sin in the same way, but every single one of us has sinned in one way. In multiple ways. And and gotten away with it at times. And in fact, even defended our injustice. I mean, just consider, have you ever slandered someone just to cover your own errors? Or maybe just even to make yourself look better? Have you ever accused another person of sinning just because your feelings were hurt? or you you told other people i think this is what's really going on in this person's heart painting a picture of them that was horrific when you really had no evidence of that at all have you ever taken pleasure at committing a foul in sports and getting away with it and then gotten angry when the referee called you on a foul or when they didn't call a foul Have you ever cheated on a test or committed plagiarism? See, we do unjust things because at the core of our being, we're no different than any of the people we're reading about in this account, except Christ. We all are unjust. And this is why I think it's important for us to direct our attention to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man? when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Because we are so guilty and unjust, this is why Jesus died. This is why He allowed Himself to be treated so unjustly. Because there was no justice upon the earth. And because God was committed to justice, that, and He knew that all of us deserve condemnation in hell, He sent His Son to receive unjust treatment so that we would not receive just treatment in being condemned. Because even though Jesus is very God of very God, even though He had more authority than all of the soldiers, than Pilate, He had more authority than the emperor. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet the Son of God is mocked as King of the Jews so that we might receive His righteousness. And this brings us to verses 16 to 21, where Jesus is mocked. Not only is justice mocked, but the just one is mocked. This injustice continues with worse forms of mockery. And there's no reason for this. There's no reason for why Jesus should have been treated so mercilessly by soldiers, except to highlight the fact that this is injustice. This is the heart of man. This is how men act when people are at their mercy. Because people don't care about justice. They want what they want. And if they can get away with it, they will. This is in the heart of every man. Justice is not served, just evil upon evil. I mean, all the soldiers' actions are mockeries of Jesus' kingship. Now that's why they put a purple robe on him. Purple was a color that was reserved for royalty. It's like putting an Armani suit upon him. They also press a crown of thorns into his brow, and they claim King of the Jews. And they they give him a reed as like a mock scepter, and then take it away and beat him on the head with it. And then they they they, they um mock homage to him as they alternate between kneeling before him and then jumping up and spitting in his face. And then after having all their fun, they lead him out to be crucified. And the account ends with the mention of Simon of Cyrene. It says they pressed into service a passerby by the coming of the country Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Cyrene was a a city located in modern-day Libya on the coast. And we know from historical records that it had a large Jewish population. And we also know in Acts, during the Feast of Pentecost, that there was a number of Jews in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost then. And so... Simon was probably a devout African Jew and he maybe was even a follower of Christ. I tend to think he was, or at least became one, because of the mention of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, Apparently, these were people that would have been known to the readers of Mark's gospel. And so it suggests that they were followers of Christ. But I don't think the verses here, just to make a shout out to a few friends... Alexander and Rufus. I think it's there to really show us how this passage applies to us. Bearing His cross should trigger what Jesus said multiple times already in this Gospel. Remember in Mark chapter 8, verse 34? After calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself And take up His cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. That last verse that I read points to the time when justice will be found upon the earth. Right now, injustice happens all over. Even when laws are followed, there is no real justice. Because justice isn't received for the sins of people's hearts. There are people that get away with crimes. There are people that are punished for crimes they've never committed. Injustice happens everywhere. But the hope that we have is that God sees all of it. He sees every word that is, hears every word that is spoken. He sees every unjust act. He sees the motives, the evil motives of our heart. And he says, every act, every thought, all of it will come into judgment. When Jesus returned, justice will take place. Every man will receive justly their condemnation for every sin that they have committed. All who have sinned against God will bear their punishment in full. And the only ones who will escape punishment are those who have never sinned. That's just how just God is. God cannot look over any sin. But you you say, "But, but we've all sinned. Every man has sinned. And this is precisely why Jesus endured such mockery and pain. Jesus allowed himself to be mocked and crucified so that in his death he would bear their sins so that they might escape the punishment they do deserve, the punishment that's coming when He returns for every sinful act and thought that they have ever committed. And so the question is asked, who will receive such amnesty from the wrath of God? Who will not receive the just condemnation that they deserve? Well, it's those who recognize how merciful Christ is those in recognizing that then choose to follow him, to bear their own cross and follow him. They recognize those, it's, it's those who recognize that they are as unjust as Pilate, they're as unjust as Barabbas, they're as unjust even as the religious leaders. And yet they have not received the justice that, that they're due. Because Jesus died for them. And recognizing how much Jesus has saved them from, they are compelled to go out and proclaim to the world how every individual can escape the just judgment that they deserve. That there is an amnesty for all who would believe in Christ. And so taking up their cross and following Him, they willfully, like their Lord, bear injustice. So that all people might hear that justice has been satisfied in Christ. And so, verse 21 begs this question Is that you? Will you escape condemnation? Or will you bear the full wrath for all of your sins? There's no halfway, it's all or nothing. And the only way to escape the wrath of God is through Christ. And so, are you ready to follow Jesus? Are you ready to accept the injustice that He bore so that others might hear how they can escape justice in Christ? Are you ready to endure mockery and shame and loss and death? Again, the title of this message was Answering Injustice. How should we answer injustice? Well, I think first of all, what we, in order to answer injustice, we need to begin by acknowledging we are all unjust. We are just like Barabbas. We are just like Pilate. And I realize we haven't committed all the sins that they've committed. But the point of Matthew 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is that even if you haven't committed adultery, if you've had one lustful thought it's as if you had. Even if you haven't committed murder, if you've hated somebody, it's as if you had. All of us have acted unjustly. And because of that, we deserve worse than any act of injustice any person or any government can ever commit against us. We deserve... any act of injustice we could ever receive. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that even though you've committed all these wrongs, it's really no big deal and you should be able to get away with it. Do you realize what you deserve? That's You, we deserve far worse. We deserve hell. That's how guilty we are. And radically, recognizing how radically we have been rescued from what we deserve, Christians will be willing to endure any sort of unjust treatment because they haven't received what they justly deserve, just so that they can tell other people they can be rescued from the wrath of God as well. What is any injustice compared to hell? We have the words of eternal life. We can set people free from their condemnation by proclaiming to them what Christ has done. And I think it's hard for us to believe that we deserve hell because none of us has really yet received what we actually deserve. But Even when we do, we deserve, we, we get punishment. We get a ticket for speeding, for instance we still don't really recognize how, how that's warranted. How much more warranted, though, is hell because of all the sins we've committed? And I think because we don't recognize that, we just think there is no consequence for sin. If somebody thinks that, they're not saved. Do you recognize what you deserve? And if so, you will be compelled to share others' how they can be saved as well. And that's really the second point. God's answer to injustice is Christ. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. And just as He accepted unjust treatment so that we might escape justice and receive mercy, likewise, we will accept injustice so that others can receive mercy. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That verse alone should so set you free that you're willing to endure any pain. And realizing again God's answer to that should compel us to take up our cross and share this good news with others. I, I, I think the problem with why there isn't more evangelism in the world is, again, because I don't think Christians really get what they've been saved from. We need to grasp this. But even in grasping what we've been saved from, what we truly deserve, we need to grasp that we will never taste any of the condemnation that we justly deserve. And that should fuel us with joy in our proclamation, taking up our cross, following Christ, not begrudgingly, but with complete delight that we're free. Let's pray. God, we want to be a joyful people, but we need to have our minds renewed and we need to increase in our awareness of how sinful we really are and therefore what we deserve and yet, And therefore, how much has been accomplished for us in the injustice that was committed against Christ. Lord, we thank you that even even when we deserved hell, that you loved us so much that you would send your son to bear the penalty that we deserve. And that you've even given us the opportunity to be an ambassador, to share with other corrupt people, other sinners, that they too can be saved. They can be rescued. And I pray that you would awaken their minds, even if there's any unbeliever here, that you would so inflame their hearts in recognizing the amazing truth of the gospel that even this day they would go out and share this good news with others. That, that there would be a revival of gospel truth proclaimed that sinners would recognize what they've been saved from and experience the amazing grace that is available to them in Christ. And use us as a church also to be a powerful vehicle in reaching lost sinners with the good news of salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.